From Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. With me here in my New York office is Imogen Rose-Smith, an investment fellow with the University of California. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And joining us from Impact Alpha's world headquarters in the Bay Area of California is David Bank, editor and CEO of Impact Alpha. Hi, David. Hi, it's great to see you guys again. Well, it's, it's great to be with you both. Today, let's talk about the letter heard round the world, which caused corporate executives to frantically email their public relations, investor relations, and corporate responsibility leads to find a purpose. It was, of course, the annual letter sent by Larry Fink, CEO of the world's largest asset manager, BlackRock, with $6.3 trillion, that's trillion with a T, dollars under management. As an index provider, BlackRock invests in nearly every listed company around the world. So what was the message that these thousands of corporate CEOs heard? To prosper over time, Fink told the CEOs, every company must not only deliver financial performance, but also show how it makes a positive contribution to society. He went on to write, without a sense of purpose, no company, either public or private, can achieve its full potential. It will ultimately lose the license to operate from key stakeholders. The criticisms came immediately from pundits and analysts. Sam Zell, famous investor, captured the critics' feelings. He said, I didn't know Larry Fink had been made God. Imogen, who made Larry Fink God? I think Larry Fink's $6.3 trillion in assets is what makes him God. Um, And I think there is a a particularly enjoyable irony about Sam Zell, who is famously known as the grave dancer for his taking over dying companies as a corporate raider in the 80s and 90s, basically calling Larry Fink out for acting like God. Um, And it actually, I mean... There's a reason to point out Sam Zell's points, which is that what this is in part about is a tension between the long-term shareholders that Larry Fink represents and for whom he invests and the short-term activists of which Sam Zell is one. And what is the best use of corporate profits? Should they be being given back to shareholders or should they be being put into long-term growth and long-term strategies? And, you know, the, the sort of the the prosaic slash boring part of what Larry Fink is really saying is is that that companies should be thinking about the long term gains. He is saying that that is long term to him, by definition, means social good and that companies don't that don't do that well. And I think this is the most interesting part of what he's saying is lose their license to operate. So, so, David, let's get into that. What does that mean, this license to operate? How is this language around license to operate? How is this a, a game changer in the space? And what's different about this annual letter from Larry Fink? Well, I think, just to put it in the context of the, of the, of the letters of the last few years, he had one a couple of years ago that talked about this long-term thinking, and then he had another one about investing in your workers and your employees. And those are both ways of articulating. And I think this, this license to operate notion is, a, is another way to articulate this sort of stakeholders approach where there are other people with an interest in your company's performance than the, just the shareholders. So there are employees, there's the community, there's the environment, um, that, uh, you know, and, and that, in fact, you have to be adding value to all of that. Now, he does want to put this in the context and, you know, he's pushed back against these critics by saying all of that will ultimately lead to your long-term profitability. And that's what he's actually interested in, even as an index 
uh, investor because you know you need to have a context in which your business can prosper. So he's trying to sort of have it both ways and say yes, social purpose, but yes, yes, uh, yes, corporate profits. And that's where the the discussion gets kind of interesting from an impact investing point of view. I think that obviously the, the, the criticism of Larry Fink saying this and has been over time is that, you know, while he talks the talk and he puts out this sort of highfalutin letter every year around the time of Davos when, you know, every big wig on earth, including, you know, this year Donald Trump, is sitting around being a professional rich person having high-minded conversations, maybe not Trump, um, you know, that, that BlackRock doesn't walk the walk, right? That it as an index provider, has not historically followed up Larry Fink's insistence on, you know, this sort of ESG social good with its actions, particularly around proxy voting. Now, what's interesting is that that, and I think one of the reasons that this letter hit such a chord as well, is that is starting to change. So BlackRock, in the last proxy season, voted against Exxon in particular on key proxy votes concerning climate change. And that's a big deal if these large asset owners start, in fact, backing up their rhetoric with action around proxy voting. Now, you're never going to see, you're very unlikely to see an indexer divest, but that kind of muscle and that kind of engagement is not nothing. Yeah. And what what he's really talking about, as you said at the outset, is what are these companies going to do with their corporate cash? And he said, get a long term strategy that invests in innovation, that invests in growth, that invests in the future of your business, or else these corporate raiders are going to come and say, give back the cash to shareholders in the form of buybacks and dividends. And in fact, that's been the story of the last you know, a few years or a few decades in the stock market that the companies are giving back, you know, virtually all of their profits to shareholders in the form of buybacks, which kind of signals that they don't have another better idea for what to do with that money. Well, I think that gets to the question of who's a better allocator of capital. Is it the, the managers of companies or is it investors? And I think essentially what many of these public companies are saying is uh, we're out of ideas so here, you guys take the cash that we've generated, uh, and you figure out how to better allocate it. I don't think it's you investors know better how to put this money. I think it's then you will bid up our share prices because the earnings per share go up because there's fewer shares. And therefore, the stock market you know run will continue and everybody will stay happy. And that's you know, it has nothing to do with better allocation of capital. It has to do with keeping the share prices up. There's an interesting... Um, you know, pernicious effect to this, which is, you know, the, the the most successful companies, the Apples and the Alphabets and the and the Amazons can return money to shareholders. Um, actually, maybe Amazon shouldn't be in that list, but they can return money to shareholders and still have uh, money to, to invest. But the companies that are struggling and that have to compete in the, in the stock market then spend all of their money giving it back to shareholders and don't have money to invest. And so in effect, you have this sort of, again, a sort of concentration at the top where the most successful companies get more successful because they're, they're able to boost their share prices with these, effectively with these subsidies, and the other ones get uh, run out of town. And I think some of it is fear, right? Some of it is a fear that you are going to have an activist investor. I mean, you're seeing this in Japan right now. You're seeing corporate governance transformations underway. And one of the things that they're really concerned about is that activists are going to come in and start having sort of very negative shareholder activist campaigns 
on these Japanese companies. And so, you know, it's hard for, yeah, the, the, the not top tier companies sometimes to really express and stand by long-term strategies if they're in a position where investors might come in and demand large dividend payments. And I think that, again, is what Larry Fink is kind of pushing back against say, and saying, no, have a long-term plan. But again, he's doing that because that is in that most benefits him, right? And that most benefits an index strategy as opposed to an active management strategy where you could actually, which is the flip side that says you can actually make value from shareholder engagement because my shareholder engagement isn't necessarily, hey, give me all your money back. It could be come up with a different strategy. Right. And I think, and just quoting from Larry Fink's letter though, too, I think that uh, the, the challenge is that without a sense of purpose, these companies will succumb, as he says, quote, to short-term pressures to distribute earnings and in the process sacrifice investments uh, that are necessary for long-term growth. And he said it will remain ex the companies that don't have a long-term purpose will remain exposed to activist campaigns, as you guys have spoken, that articulate a clearer goal, even if that goal serves only the shortest and narrowest of objectives. And ultimately, that company will provide subpar returns to the investors who depend on it to finance their retirement, home purchases, or higher education. So the, the long-term value creation uh, that is represented by uh, what BlackRock is trying to achieve for the investors that uh, give its give their money to to them to to invest in what Larry Fink is trying to do is articulate the pro corporate profits reason for social responsibility and and for this sort of more stakeholder approach. So he's trying to, in some sense, have it both ways and say, having that broader purpose, that long term purpose, that invest in your employees, that invest in your community sort of approach is going to be better for your business. Therefore, it's not actually at odds with this notion of shareholder value. Right. He's saying, I'm looking out for you. I'm, I'm trying to help. Uh, and I'm trying to help uh, help protect you against uh, these corporate raiders or these activists or these other kind of pressures you might face. So I'm trying to give you a fair warning that if, if you want to stay on BlackRock's good side, then you will prepare for the future that we see coming. I have a question, for, I I have a question for Imogen because it's something I don't quite understand well. So I understand that if BlackRock's an index investor, it has to own the index and therefore it can't divest uh, from particular stocks because that would separate it from being an index investor. But can there be any leverage in changing the way the indexes operate? Uh, or does every... BlackRock, BlackRock doesn't create the index, right? So it invests in the index, which is created by MSCI or whoever, who have FT or whoever the service provider is who changes the index. We change the index. The indices change all the time, yes. Companies fall in and out, but, go in and out of indexes depending on their performance and the selection of these, meant, of these indexes. Exactly. Index but what they're providers. meant to be is a, they're meant to be a reflection of the economy, right? Right. Which is why if you get into kind of well, like reflection the- reflection of the market, not yeah. necessarily the economy. So good point. But if you get into like the, um, you know, FTSE for good index or something else, that's not really an indices in the way that we really use them to invest. So, you know, if you were an activist and you wanted to put pressure on someone to take Exxon out of the index, A, that wouldn't make any sense, and B, BlackRock would not actually be your target. Your target would be the people constructing the indices. 
And, and to be fair, too, it, the, the, the nature of an index, it's also called passive investing. So the idea is that you are uh, not picking winners, individual winners and losers. You're just saying, I'm going to give you exposure to the entire market. And I mean, to you know, sort of go back to the, the crux of the discussion, I think that one of the, the reasons Larry Fink's letters irritate people is because it's an incredibly self-serving argument, right? So BlackRock is coming under pressure as more and more ETFs and cheaper forms of passive investment come to market. Therefore, even though on substance he may be right, and I agree with a lot of what he says, people find this sort of, you know, don't worry, BlackRock's looking out for you guys, we are the champion of social governance, irritating. And so there is a, because there's a business tension there within BlackRock and something that seems very self-serving about him promoting himself as this champion. Even though, again, in his defense, I think he genuinely believes, he genuinely believes in long-term ownership and he genuinely believes in the power of good governance and corporations. Well, I think, you know, we talked about the critics and we jumped right into that. But I mean, in the circles that uh, we run in in Impact Alpha, this was greeted with, you know, with 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 joy, uh, regardless of these practical issues, which are which are, are considerable, as you say. But the signaling effect of the world's largest asset manager saying that stakeholders are important, saying that social purpose is important, saying that social responsibility is important, is a huge kind of um, uh, you know, m you know, historical moment in the evolution of this of this whole approach to investing, don't you think? <laughs> no, I don't. Because I <laughs> that's Imogen, that's why you are our beloved curmudgeon. No, uh, because I think that there have been voices saying this going back over time, and what's interesting about the sort of the the impact investment movement is it was very much a private markets focused movement for a reason, which is that it didn't see the ability to affect change in the public markets. So I find it ironic, this sort of 180 that the impact community does at certain points where it gets really excited by this stuff, when these debates have been going on forever. And yeah, you know, broadly, I think, what Larry Fink is saying is important and I do think it's significant, but I don't think, you know, I don't think it's a reason to like, you know, throw a party. Well, I, I've been spending some time, you know, in the very nitty gritty world of, you know, impact measurement and reporting and impact management. And, you know, the, speaking of throwing a party, speaking <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, the Dutch pension fund PGGM submitted itself to a kind of mapping exercise of its impact. And it, you know, found that, you know, it had positive impact in some cases and negative in others and, and what you'd expect. You know, uh, pension funds like Ca the California State Teachers Retirement System, 250 billion or so, or so you know, is, is, is signing on to a investor agenda around climate change along with a bunch of other investors pr committing itself to reporting and accounting and disclosure and, and metrics and, and guidelines around carbon exposure and whatnot. I mean, there is a you know, sort of separate from from Larry Frank, and and uh, but but in parallel, there is a big movement going on among big asset owners to kind of get more serious about this stuff and to try to put more than rhetoric to 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 it. 
And that's my point is that that's been that's been going on and it's definitely accelerating and I see the value in it and why it's interesting. I just don't know that it is the most valuable part of the like I don't I don't know that the impact community is part of this ride, right? Like, yes, you could say, oh, BlackRock embraced impact investing, but arguably that's really branding for a niche part of what they're doing, right? This is, this is, this is a corporate institutional asset owner conversation that's been going on for decades. All, all the way back to Milton Friedman in 1970 and the famous article that everybody references about shareholder, shareholder value and that being the prime uh, pr- only priority of a, of, a, of a company. Well, actually, that that I think that quote is often taken out of context, and I, I pulled it up in preparation for this podcast, and I'm going to pull it out now. Uh, this is Milton Friedman in the 1970 New York Times Magazine piece he wrote, uh, and this is this is the full quote. He said, "In a free enterprise, private property system, a corporate executive is an employee of the owners of the business. He has direct responsibility to his employers." That responsibility is to conduct the business in accordance with their desires, which generally will be to make as much money as possible while conforming to the basic rules of the society, both those embodied in law and those embodied in ethical custom. And so that's that's the end of the quote. So again, the responsibility to conduct uh, the business in accordance with the desires of the owners of the business. Uh, and that means to make as much money while conforming to the basic rules of society, both those in law and those in custom. And I think what Larry Fink in his letter is saying is he's representing over $6.3 trillion of assets of wealth that's been entrusted to his company, BlackRock, on behalf of millions of individuals and institutions who have given BlackRock their money to invest on their behalf. And he's saying that he's feeling the pressure from those collective owners that he represents to say, hey, public companies that we invest in, we want to make as much money as possible, but we also have some other desires. And that these, the basic rules of society, yes, those are obvious that you need to comp- uh, comport to, but also the customs and the ethical customs are evolving. And that this notion that uh, uh, that companies are just there to maximize uh, financial performance is is an outdated uh, ethical custom in our society. And that where we are in this stage of financial capitalism is that there is more pressure coming from the owners of capital uh, to see their capital being put to work uh, in a way that's aligned with their values. Yeah, it's, it's the greed is good argument versus the, you know, doing good by doing well and that good companies will out and that good management will out and that being a, a good corporate citizen will ultimately lead to better business, which will lead to better returns. I think, though, that why I was sort of getting cranky about the, the, the impact community jumping up and down and getting so excited about this also goes to that, which is this debate is very much about shareholder ownership and it very much believes that some type of shareholder some type of owner is is the responsible investor, is the, the, the best actor, and that companies will do best when they, in whatever shape or form that is, be it, be, it, be it over the long term, which is what Larry Fink is saying, or the short term, which is what Sanzel is saying, give value to shareholders. I don't think that is entirely what impact investing is about. And I also think that you can create really, really, really good companies, and that's in part what the private markets are for, that's what venture is for, by being completely unreasonable, right? And that by that sometimes it is it is the unreasonable actor. It is it is the company that goes off and does something crazy that builds the next Apple, builds whatever it is, and that there is 
within the the need for social change, there there is a need for that kind of you know disruption for one of a better word that is not part of this conversation. Yeah, but I, just to take it back to this conversation about corporations and and, and public companies and, and shareholders, the footnote of that um, Milton Friedman article was that he was responding in large part to a, a activist campaign in a social activist sense campaign at General Motors to put some community representative types on the board who were going to push things, you know, Ralph Nader type things around car safety and fuel economy and whatnot. And, you know, Milton Friedman was saying that was, you know, something like, you know, unadulterated socialism. When in fact, if you look at the history of the car industry from 1970 onward, you know, if you, you know, were slow or late to get to car safety and slow or late to get to fuel economy, you know, you weren't a very successful car company. So the very thing that the that the social activists were pushing turned out to be essential to the future of the corporation. And that's kind of gets closer to where I think Larry Fink is trying to be, which is, hey, don't just succumb to the short term, you know, hyping of your stock price. Think long term, build value, create, you know, think innovation, think growth markets, think invest in your employees, think invest in your communities. Right. But so, David, I think this leads to a fundamental challenge in this uh, with this Larry Fink approach. And, and it's it was very easy for companies to previously measure their financial performance. We have centuries of experience in uh, anticipating, measuring and reporting financial performance of a company. But how do you measure how a company makes a positive contribution to society beyond financial performance? How do you operationalize that? Who defines that? Who defines what a positive contribution is? Who's to say? Well, that's that's what I was saying. You know, there's a, a ton of work going on around that, you know, for the particulars of the frameworks and the measurements and the taxonomies and all that. But you do get to an excellent point, which is there is a social you know, value system embedded in all that. And people have to make some call about what they defi- what they consider social purpose. Do you think, you know, taking action on climate change by reducing your carbon footprint is, you know, part of social purpose. I mean, people can disagree and do disagree on that. But, you know, as I said, there's a a whole kind of leading edge, at least, of the institutional investor world that is saying that that is a very important uh, aspect of fiduciary duty, that climate risk over time is going to erode the value of your holdings. And therefore, as a, you know, as a fiduciary, you better, you know, start addressing climate risk. So it does get to social value, and that could be at some level, you know, sort of just personal. But where I think it gets operationalized is when it is when you can start tracking it, you know, to financial value um, ultimately. Imogen, so how how does this operationalize then? I mean, I actually largely agree with what David was saying, but I think it it it's what well, the point Larry Fink is making is is that ultimately it comes back to profitability, right? That but you need to take a leap, leap of faith. So it becomes operationalized because the stuff that is a social good for your company will also be the stuff that enables you to be profitable over the long term. So it also becomes a question of materiality, right? What are the things that are material to your business that are going to matter? If, you, you know, if you're a fossil fuel company, then you have to figure out how to transition away from fossil fuels and companies that fail to do that are going to struggle over the long term. All right. We're going to leave it right there, thinking about short term versus long term. Thank you so much, Imogen. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. Thanks to both of you. Thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thank you, Isaac. 
This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha. Be sure to sign up for Impact Alpha's newsletter, The Brief, providing daily news and actionable intelligence for the growing number of people working to build an inclusive, resilient, and yes, prosperous future. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you the next time.